forever. Dog. Just between us. Hey. Just between us. health advocate and daily shaver of my arms, legs, and armpits. Yikes. Hi, I'm Gabby Dunn. I'm a writer, bicon, bisexual, icon, wink, and I do none of that. (laughs) I do it for me. I do it for me. One of the best parts of the pandemic for me has been figuring out that I don't care about that at all. That's great. I don't paint my nails anymore. I don't get pedicures, obviously, because you're not supposed to, but like none of it. And I think like that's been true for a lot of people. Well, I used to think that I could never paint my own nails because I don't have the fine motor skills. But after months and months and months of this bullshit, I have finally become pretty good at it. Oh, really? That's probably the one skill I have picked up in quarantine. Is it like that that in coping from an abandonment? That's pretty much it. I was going to say, like, um, the thing of where your one hand is perfect and your other hand is just like you've painted your entire finger. It's over. Well, part of it is you can clean up. That's the thing I had to learn. So you can make mistakes. The, the issue is more making mistakes where the nail bed ends. That's harder. But like yeah. on the side or in the top, that's okay. You should get one of those um, gel machines. No. Why? It'll stay longer. Now I'm off gel because it's a lot healthier for my nails not to do gel. And the yeah. UV rays in gel also might give you cancer. I only buy Olive and June products, although we're not sponsored by them yet. And they keep coming out with new things. And I'm like, oh, I, I do need this nail primer. Like I'm <laughs> such a fucking sucker for every new product that they drop. I'm like, I've got to have it. <laughs> I've gone one extra day of not chipping. <laughs> sign me up. <laughs> is your skincare routine still just water? Um, no, I mean, I wash my face in the shower and I use a cleansing wipe at the end of the day. Okay. And I use cream on my face. But my skin's been bad because I've been dealing with trauma. Not to me from where I'm sitting. It's it's getting better. Yeah. What sort of cream? I just started using a new face cream in the last couple of weeks. And I I really do like it, but I could not tell you what it is. Great. Helpful (laughs) to our listeners. Okay, because I was never, here's quarantine stuff. I was never like a skincare person, um, which is like people could go. Not really. I didn't use like products or anything. You've used stuff. You've used like masks and like witch hazel, haven't you? And like, you've done stuff. Just masks. You've done masks. Yeah, the Queen Helene mint julep mask is great. I got like a primer and I got like a moisturizer and I got like all this stuff, which by the way, my skin is so sensitive that I used a cleansing wipe. The grapefruit Neutrogena cleansing wipes, by the way, will take your whole face off. Like you want to- Really? I've used those a bunch. You have? Okay. The regular Neutrogena wipe, incredible. The grapefruit one, I like- my skin was like, I looked like the the Nazis with their face melting off in Temple of Doom. Like it was bad. I've used the Burt's Bees one. Okay, not so the Neutrogena grapefruit. But I do use the Neutrogena Hydro Boost Wipe as my as my nighttime. Yeah, cleansing. that one. Good. Grapefruit literally peeled my whole face off. And um, and then I traded faces with John Travolta and it was a whole movie. Anyway, oh, cool. uh, I had to start using really gentle stuff. 
And so I I got something by Murad, which I think is um, was really good. And it's like a spray. But I have eczema on my face. Can I give you an eczema update? Yes, please. So remember I thought I had warts on my hands? Uh-huh. Eczema. Hand eczema. What? It's eczema on my hands, Allison. But it looked like one wart? Oh, no, no, no. It was multiple warts. I oh, thought you it thought was... it was multiple uh-huh. warts, but it was really eczema. Got it. Yep. I currently have a, a, a rash on my arms. That's that's new. <laughs> it's like raised bumps, but it's not itchy. This is the thing about aging, okay? Everything was fine. I was spry. I did all the drugs and drank all the alcohols. Bounce right back. No problems. Now I'm like waking up. I got cramps. My teeth are falling apart. I had to go back to the dentist and get like another fucking thing for my teeth. I got hand eczema. It does not get better. I will say though, it's better that it's hand eczema than warts because it's really fucking painful to get warts removed. And I was trying to downplay it for you when we were talking (laughs) about it. But like, that's why I was like, oh, maybe you should take some Advil ahead of time. But like, it's like a nightmare to get a wart removed. (laughs) You were trying to like, when I said I have to go get warts removed, you were like, it might be bad, but you knew it was going to be awful. At least when I've had it. But I also had planter's wart when I was a kid. So it's on your foot. So then you have this, the pain of the spray and then also the pain of like walking on it after. But anyway, this is, this is just between us, a variety show filled with heartfelt advice, ridiculous games and brutal honesty. And also, let me ask you a question. Do you think that I complain a lot about things that are just being a person? Do you complain about things that are just being a person? Yeah. Like, I'll be like, oh, I have like a a pimple or like, oh, my like nail hurts or whatever. And Mal will be like, a lot of your complaints are just humanity. (laughs) I will say that on the on the scale of people who complain too much, people who don't (laughs) complain at all, you are a complainer. You find ways to complain about things that other people would see as a good thing. (laughs) Oh, my God. You sound like my dad. I'm sorry. Like what? Like what? I will say that sometimes lately you've been complaining about things that then indirectly upset me because because of I don't think you take into account like the reality of my life. So oh. like you'll complain that like Mal won't leave you alone where my fiance left me. So like I don't really <laughs> want to hear about you complaining about that your partner's obsessed with you. Uh, and then you'll complain that you got sponsored by The Bachelorette instead of RuPaul. But like, I didn't even get sponsored by The Bachelorette. And I've loved that show way longer than you. So just like maybe some stuff of like taking in the context. Of yeah, perspective. I think what we can yeah. learn here is perspective. And mm-hmm. and this is a thing that um, I'm actively working on in terms of like gratitude and perspective. And so like, I just want to let you... I'm sorry, Allison, and I just want to let it's you okay. and the listeners know that I am I am attempting perspective. I am attempting to be like, oh, no, I have eczema on my hands and um, that's not the end of the world. And sometimes people get eczema. And like, <laughs> but I think also the next step is also taking into account who you're saying it to and what yeah. the context of their situation is True. a little bit more. True. But we're all we're all learning. <laughs> It's all a journey. (laughs) Yeah. Well, this is probably a good lesson for our listeners as well. I think so. Oh, I was going to say, and if you have a friend who's doing that, 
tell them. Yeah, it's always hard to know when to bring it up. So it's nice when they already gave you a clear segue like you just gave me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think my, my partner says that too. And I've had that problem my whole life of just like something good will happen. And I'll be like, yeah, but this, 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 or like, oh, you got mm-hmm. this thing. And it's like, yeah, I got it. But like, it might mm-hmm. not even be whatever. Um, and you have to like reframe things in a positive way. Yeah. And it's a, that'll help you internally as well. Yeah. From like focusing on the negative so much. I don't want to be a complainer. Is that a complaint? <laughs> <laughs> this week, we're going to be asking Brian Hutchison, aka Global Career Guy, some tough questions about career counseling. And later, we'll be talking about the concept of happiness. Quite fitting. <laughs> but first, hit it! International question! International question! International question! Anonymous. From somewhere. I add. I added from somewhere just to make the, the song have a little punch. Okay, so the TLDR. How do I stop bringing old relationship baggage into new relationships? Hi, Allison and Gabby. First of all, just want to thank both of you so much for the work you've done over the years. I have followed and loved you since BuzzFeed and have always found your content interesting and inspiring, and it has really made me feel less alone. Your podcast in particular has definitely played a huge role in my recent growth, and I feel like it has made me a better person. Sorry for the sappiness. Never apologize for sappiness. I wanted to hear your thoughts on bringing old relationship baggage into new relationships. Me and my ex-partner broke up around two years ago. The situation wasn't great, in part because their mental health was very bad at the time. The relationship, which started out exciting and loving, deteriorated rapidly, and they never communicated with me honestly. They refused to talk to me about their mental health or the state of our relationship, often gave me the silent treatment. I was terrified that they were falling out of love with me, but kept convincing myself that it was just their mental illness. My fears were confirmed, however, when they broke up with me in a very upsetting way. I am in a new relationship now and am very happy, but I'm constantly scared that my partner will break up with me at any moment. It's hard to assure myself that behaviors like taking a while to text back, being a bit distant one day, or not wanting to stay over are normal because in my last relationships, these were signs that I was about to be dumped. What can I do to work through this baggage so it doesn't affect this new relationship? Thanks so much. Love you guys. Oh, wow. This is the eternal question. (laughs) Because all we have is our past experiences and like even physically in our bodies, we remember certain things being triggers, certain things, how they felt. And so even if you're not consciously connecting the two relationships, memory is so in your body that it, you know, Mm -hmm. it might trigger the same fight or flight. And like, it's so not applicable to that particular situation. Yeah, I mean, this is obviously something I know I'm going to have to deal with coming Mm -hmm. up. Um, and I've thought about it a lot. I think for me, there is some strength in knowing that you have already survived the worst. Things become really scary in relationships because we've given them so much power Mm -hmm. where we feel like their decision-making will make or break our lives. And so then it becomes like a very dangerous situation. But I think if you reframe it as, you know, I cannot control this, there could be no signs and I could still get dumped. And knowing that, like, regardless of what action happens, you will be okay. I think might take away some of the fear. I mean, you can't control the other person. Like, I think even thinking of it as like, well, no, they're not going to, they won't do this. It's like, they might. And like, 
you only can take at face value what is happening in the moment and what each individual person is, right? So like if this new person is just someone who doesn't text back frequently, like that's just like what they are like. People can have the same behaviors without the same intention behind those behaviors. Yeah, and I mean, I think that obviously when something really traumatic has happened to you, you have to express that to your yes, new yes. partner, right? So you have to say, look, I understand that like, You've never done this to me, but given my history, these things do, do trigger me a little bit. And like, I understand that that's completely unfair to you. Mm -hmm. That's just my history. That's something I'm working on, you know? So would you mind texting back a little faster? Would you mind texting me back? And so I think it's, it's like twofold. One is like expressing that to your new partner and Mm -hmm. having them maybe, you know, at least for like the first year or two of that relationship maybe meeting you a little further than they would normally. Yeah. And then the second half is the stuff that you do on your own. That's you knowing that no matter what, you will be okay. That's you also recognizing that your ex's behavior was not a reflection on you. Mm -hmm. And it was not something that you caused. Mm -hmm. It was something in them. Mm -hmm. And therefore, what are the chances that that thing is going to be in this new person? Yes. Because I think when you think that you are the cause of it, you're like, well, it's going to happen again because I'm the common denominator in both right. relationships. Right. But in reality, it was something that was going on with your ex. You just happen to be the casualty of that. Yes. I think it's also important to be aware of things that might just not be compatible. Like I had a relationship in the past that didn't work out. I was a little bit seeing someone who I recognized had similar attributes mm-hmm. and similar problems. And I was like honest with him. And I was like, I don't think that we can keep seeing each other. And I know that you're not the same as my ex, but I am witnessing similar behaviors and similar things. And I just know that that doesn't work for me. Yeah. I've done something like that before too. Yeah. And he fought me a bit because he was like, I'm not that person. It's not fair. And I was like, no, I know you're not that person, but I've learned. So I, I don't even see it as baggage. I see it as like wisdom or learning where I'm like, I've learned that, Someone who doesn't want me to stay over is not okay with me. It's not it's upsetting. Or I've learned that I can't be with someone who be- doesn't take their career that seriously. You know, like I think you're allowed to recognize things in a new relationship that you know didn't work for you in the past mm-hmm. and evaluate that and think, okay, this is not compatible then. Because I right. learned in my past relationship, which was a learning experience, that this doesn't work for me. I think a lot of times we over pathologize ourselves when it Mm -hmm. comes to relationships where we think that in order for us to be in a healthy relationship, we have to just be like cool and chill with everything. Right. And that's not true. Like you can very much have standards and those standards might not be my standards. They Mm -hmm. might not be Gabby's standards, but they're your standards for what make you feel good in a relationship. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then I think you can then sit and look at those standards and say, okay, is it healthy that my standard is I need my partner to check on me every hour? Yeah. Maybe not. Maybe that's a standard that I need to work with. Maybe Mm -hmm. that's a a certain thing of discomfort that I have to become okay with. Mm -hmm. But is my standard that if I've been intimate with my partner that I then need to be able to spend the night because otherwise I go home and I feel a little icky or used or, or like, you know, that's valid. 
Yeah. You know, like that's a valid standard to have. And so if you then meet somebody who's like, I don't like to have sleepovers after we've been intimate, you can say that's totally valid as your standard, but that does not work for me. Right. You have to be, I hate this. This is my least favorite thing is to be vulnerable and say like these full sentences that are vulnerable. But oftentimes I have to give Mal context. So like, Mm -hmm. I, I can't just like shut down and be quiet and go into the bedroom and like be like, I need to be by myself. I have to say like, hey, like I in past relationships have felt a little bit smothered and I don't want to repeat that. So I need like, it is not my instinct. It is so hard for me to be like, I'm upset because I just want to be upset. I don't want to have to say (laughs) to another person, I am upset because in the past I have dated people who I felt were lying to me. And I know you're not lying to me, but you said a similar thing to what this person, you know what I mean? Like, Mm -hmm. and you, so how you have to like over explain things in this way that like allows for everyone to feel not anxious and to feel like communicating. I guess what I hate is communicating. Like I just, (laughs) I just am like, so I hate the vulnerability of having to say this stuff, but you have to, it makes the relationship so much better. It gives everybody context. It makes like People so that your new partner doesn't think that they did something wrong. Like, hey, I know where this comes from. This insecurity comes from. And like, can we work on this and make this better for the two of us so we have a future? Like, it sucks. Like, I am a person for whom it sucks. So I understand that it sucks. You have to do it. Especially with issues like trust. Mm -hmm. You know, if this new partner hasn't done anything for you to question their trust, Mm -hmm. it'll just confuse them. Yeah. Well, it could maybe be like upsetting to them. It's Mm -hmm. sort of like, why would you think that I would treat you that way? Why would you think that I would just fail? That's not me. That's not what I'm capable of. Mm -hmm. And so, again, giving that context of I understand that. But for me, that's happened to me before. Yes. It's the same thing of like, if you've had a really bad car accident, it might be hard for you to get in the car. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Letting people know that. But then again, that twofold of like that communication and then also sitting with yourself and really going through things and saying, okay, where is this healthy? And where is this regarding my safety? And how do I feel mm-hmm, good in this relationship? Mm-hmm. Where am I getting to be a little, a little maybe unhealthy? Where am I relying on reassurance a bit too much? Where am I uh, yeah. having unrealistic expectations? And so it's, it's like two completely separate processes that have to kind of happen simultaneously. If your partner has this, you have to respect where it's coming from. Like you can't get defensive and be like, well, I'm not that person. You sort of do have to respect where it's coming from because it's not personal. Like, It's not about you. But I also think that there is a level of like, if you are entering into a new relationship, I think you need to be at least a certain amount healed from Mm -hmm. your past relationship. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, if I get in the new relationship, I hope I will. (laughs) You know, like at at some point in my life that like it won't be the me a week after it happened. Do you know what I mean? Like I'll have healed enough where I won't be in crisis mode anymore. And you're looking probably, I imagine, because of who you are, you're probably looking at ways already to not put this on the other person or to be able to, when you get in a new relationship, not feel that they're going to bail at any second. I think that right now I'm like, yeah, I'm not going to put on the other person. Like, I'll be fine. Like, it'll be totally. But then who knows? I might right. I might get triggered in a way I don't expect myself to. And that's yeah. why I think it will be helpful for me 
at the beginning to explain my context mm-hmm. and say, mm-hmm. like, I've worked on this. I'm really hoping that this won't be an issue for me. Mm-hmm. But I've also never been traumatized like this before. Right. So I'm not exactly sure how it's going to play out. And so I'm just going to be honest with you as we go, but also know that I'm going to take care of my shit Mm -hmm. and that my shit is not going to be on you. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think that's a huge part of it. When you present an issue as like, fix this for me. Yeah. It's a lot. But if you say, I have this issue, but I promise you I'm working on it. Mm -hmm. That's a lot more manageable for a partner to hear. Yeah. And being very, very honest, like rather than just being like, I'm upset saying I'm upset because this reminded me of or I'm upset because and like I think then it it opens a two-way street I don't think you can ask for reassurance too many times about the same thing hopefully build into the partner get ahead of it I saw a TikTok that was like two people being really quiet in a relationship and then one person says uh I'm not mad at you I just don't want to talk right now and then the other person goes oh thank god (laughs) (laughs) I think that is like, hopefully you get to a place like that, you know? Yeah. But also, you know, everybody is different and who knows what baggage they're carrying. And so maybe for them, they had a partner who never trusted them in the past. And that Mm -hmm. was really triggering. Or they had a partner who never got over their ex. So Mm -hmm. you constantly bringing up your ex might be triggering for them. Mm -hmm. So, you know, like it's going to be a push and pull. And like sometimes you'll realize, okay, maybe I, I don't need to give all of the context. Maybe yeah. I do need to handle a little bit of this on my own. That's what I mean. You can't ask for reinsurance every time. Sometimes you have to just be like, they said it last week. I'm going to assume it hasn't changed. I will handle this feeling on my own. But it's it's hard. And, you know, and the most important thing is getting to a place where you feel safe with yourself. That is not an easy journey. And but I, I really think that that it is possible. And also, how fucking awesome that you're in a new relationship and this person makes you so happy. You know, like yeah. take the time to just be like so excited about that. I would love that. <laughs> that sounds great. <laughs> yeah. Good, good. You know? Uh, you know what? Actually, congratulations to you, listener. Seriously, like that's a huge accomplishment that you went from this real hurt and this horrible place to finding someone else who you enjoy, who brings you happiness. Like with every anxious thought, also supplement it with a gratitude thought because it's Mm -hmm. so awesome. I hope that helped. Let us know how it goes. And if you want to submit your international question, you can send it to justbetweenuspod at gmail.com. That's justbetweenuspod at gmail.com. Up next, we've got a juicy interview with our highly esteemed guest, Brian Hutchison. Stay tuned. Just between controversial segment known to all of podcasting tough questions this week on the show we have brian hutchison aka global career guy an academic author counselor trainer clinical supervisor and speaker who focuses on how work and career development impact mental health well-being school engagement and social justice hello brian Hello. And I've said that a thousand times and never in one breath. Good job. <laughs> Thank you. I'm a very quick reader. Um, so, okay. So Allison heard you on a podcast and was like, this guy rules. <laughs> How do you say like what you do? Like what's your job? Uh, so my job is uh, I consider myself a, a practitioner scholar, which is like the reverse of most professors. So <laughs> I'm still a working counselor um, for about 20 years now. Uh, I have a practice. I'm part of a practice in St. Louis, Missouri, where I started my academic career called Terrace House. And um, 
I mostly now provide clinical supervision uh, for mm -hmm. counselors that are still getting their license. So they've graduated, but they still need to work for a couple of years. As an academic, you know, I want to get my voice out there and impact the way that career development intersects with mental health, social justice, school engagement, and human wellness. And so to do that, you got to do this online social media thing in the current state. And so I, I started that brand Global Career Guy and got super surprised that it worked. And so now <laughs> I get to work all over the world talking about these topics that I've researched and that I've, I've loved so much for many years now. And so can you describe exactly what career counseling is, how it's changed? Because it used to be very different than it is now, right? Yeah. So like many, many years ago, there were vocational psychologists and career counselors, and it was a very specialized profession within the field of counseling and psychology. It has changed tremendously. In fact, I always say I don't train career counselors anymore. I train all types of counselors to do career work in their mental health practice, school counseling. Let me tell you, couples and family therapy, if you don't know how to do career concern work there, you're missing out on an opportunity to really help people and impact their lives positively. The other thing that's really changing is we have so many people that are doing career coaching and life coaching and career advising now. And so in the current state, we're trying to sort of bring some order to the chaos of all of the different ways that people can get help with career concerns is what I call them. Um, and that could be anything from I need to find a job or I need to determine whether how to get a raise or how to get a promotion. The whole way up to my work life is seriously hindering or harming my personal life, my relationships and my mental health. And so mm -hmm. I see it as encompassing just about everything about us as people. Because our, our lives are, are so tied to our careers. But in like the last few decades, you can't really have the stable career path that used to exist where you would like work at one company for 30 years. And so you're sort of like navigating that kind of almost like job to job lifestyle. And is that really taking a toll on people's mental health? It is. And I mean, I wish we could like do a reality based TV show and just vote those ideas off of the island. I mean, um, <laughs> it has not been that way for decades and decades, like since before, probably maybe you two were born, right? We've created this chain of sort of career indoctrination that actually starts before birth. And we just keep following that and building it through life with these ideas. And I think that they can become quite toxic. I mean, if you are a young person today who is just coming out of, of schooling of any level and you have this idea of, I need to find one job and keep it forever, or during a pandemic, I have to stay at this job because I can't have any more than one job in a three-year period on my resume. I mean, mm -hmm. all of these ideas just aren't true anymore. And so when I think about career work, it's always balancing out that helpful reality about what work means in our lives and how to try to strive for what we want versus the cost that work or the demands that work puts on us. And it mm -hmm. puts on our physical health. It puts on our mental health. It puts on so many aspects of the total human animal and experience, right? That, um, that we have to find better ways of educating people and talking to people about career issues. Do you focus on standing up for yourself in the workplace or like knowing how you should be treated? I think a lot of young people 
come out of college, go into the workforce and don't have any concept of what is appropriate. Yeah, I, I think that's a, a great point. And, and it's so multidimensional, right? So there's a generational element where if you get a job, oftentimes the managers are going to be two or three generations ahead of you. And so mm -hmm. there'll be differences in sort of perceiving and understanding the way that the world works or should work. And they won't have necessarily, some have, but like the, the danger there is that we keep old ideas in a current environment. And so talking about diversity, inclusion, and equity is where I see this the most, which is we want a job or we need a job. And for younger workers, it's most often more to the need side, right? Mm -hmm. And so then we get a job and we've been told all our lives that getting a job is a special thing and you should never let it go. Right. right. And so we have right. these little messages in our mind that's saying, you just don't understand when you're really mm -hmm. being marginalized or it's saying, I need to learn that this is the way that work really is when mm -hmm. in fact that work is not making you or your life any better. Mm -hmm. And it, it really benefits employers to, to not have those conversations because they can be very disruptive in the workplace if they're not handled well and handled with expertise. And so what I try to focus on, at least in my public work, is how do we create a culture around work where everyone's having those conversations outside of work, mm -hmm. a place like a podcast like this, so that we can start to get more of a culture around having better, healthier conversations everywhere, in, including work. Mm -hmm. I think one of the most interesting things that, that you talk about is like social justice right. aspect of your career. Um, can mm -hmm. you speak a little bit about that and how there is like social justice in changing the workforce? Sure. So in my view, creating more justice, creating a more just place, a more just world, a more, a more just workplace, it's contributed to by both action and inaction. Mm -hmm. So many times when we think about social justice, it's the things that we do. You know, we have mm -hmm. these terms like social justice warrior. That's like getting girded up to go out and protest and have tear gas thrown at them. And that's part of striving for justice. But sitting in a room and noticing oppression happening or marginalization happening and not saying anything, that's also contributing to injustice by your inaction. Right. Mm -hmm. and, and this is why we need as many people as possible learning about these conditions that are being created around the idea of social justice and just conditions. But we also, I think, need to look at it as a skill-based endeavor, right? We are very prone in Western societies, I think, to be like, oh, I have this impulse to do good, act. And too rarely do we ever say, wait a minute, maybe I need to learn a skill to be effective in striving for this. And so mm -hmm. when I talk about career work, you know, I try to simplify anything. It's understand, pause to clarify, and then adapt is how I teach career counselors and therapists. I think if we can teach everyone to think that way, yes, this is an unjust condition. What are the skills that I need to change this condition? Do I need to learn about politics? so that I can advocate for the change of a law? Or do I need to learn about racial conversations and mediation so that I can broach the topic effectively in the workplace? And we have a lot of good training and science behind the way to do these things effectively. But I, I also really coach people to take that pause 
not to procrastinate, but to further activate ourselves so that we have a better chance of success. A long-term, more holistic approach? Absolutely, but not at the sacrifice of the short term. I mean, Mm -hmm. things happen in the workplace and in society every day where it's like, I could choose to act or not act, and that choice could create more justice or less justice, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. okay? I also have to think about my capacity at any given time because there's this great old term that a colleague found. I think it's ancient Greek or Roman. It's called paresia, but it's the idea of speaking truth to power at risk to yourself. Mm -hmm. And so a couple thousand years ago, you could speak truth to power and be and be killed right in the Colosseum (laughs) or something like that. I mean, arguably today as well. But arguably, thank you so much for saying that. But I think that we also need to have conversation of when we make these choices to advocate for social justice, like it is risky. People Mm -hmm, do mm -hmm. get beaten, killed, Mm -hmm. arrested, fired, passed over for promotion, mean girled or mean boyed in the workplace, you know, whatever it is you want to call it. Like there are consequences to these choices. And I find that we're better long term. As you said, uh, Gabby, we're better long term if we're aware and conscious of the of the consequences of our choices so that we can be prepared to cope with them if they, if bad things happen to us. And then maybe part of that is is not feeling like that losing that job is the end of your life. Right. right? Like if you are in a toxic place, being able to maybe fight for justice and being okay with the fact that maybe then you'll need to find a new job. Yeah. And and that's those bad messages, right? I don't even know what the current statistics are because the pandemic has changed so many things in the workplace. But I mean, people starting out in their careers today are are almost certainly on average going to have double digits numbers of jobs in their lives. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I was having a conversation recently. I think there's some interesting things, and I'm not an expert on this, but the psychology of abundance is something that I want to research soon. So if you go back to like hunter and gatherer society, which is where I always start because that's where our brains develop the way they are today, they never hunted and gathered food for more than two or three days at a time. Mm -hmm, They just always were like, oh, it'll be okay because we'll either just have to hunt longer until we find food, but eventually we'll be okay. Somehow when it comes to career and work, we think that there's nothing more out there than what we currently have. We've been indoctrinated with that message. And I, and I don't think that's healthy for our brains or, or us as, mm-hmm. as a human animal. And it's certainly not true. We see rapid turnover for work. Now, of course, things could get redirected in different ways. You might have to take a step back to take two steps forward as you design right. this life. But there are certainly things that are portable that go with you regardless of your work situation. Like what? Well, like your values, your Mm -hmm. purpose, your identity, all of these things. If we can shift our focus to you seeing you as this really complex, amazing, unique, high capacity thing, person Mm -hmm. in the world, whether or not you keep that dead end, you know, that job that's not working for you as a dental hygienist doesn't really matter nearly as much. Something you're doing for money, not who you are. Well, right. And, and that's the tricky thing, right? Because we're taught from our earliest ages that your work is your identity by previous generations. Right. Mm-hmm. So, right. so if we use dental hygienists, right, the reason you have a job is because maybe you need money to pay the bills. Mm -hmm, The reason you have a job as a dental hygienist isn't because you want to be called dental hygienist the rest of your life. It's because you have values tied up in that. Like you want to help people. 
is a reason to be a dental hygienist. Mm -hmm. There are Mm -hmm. many jobs that don't require more education where you can help people and make a similar salary. Or maybe you need a job that has a structure to allow you to do family caregiving as much as you want to do. There are Mm -hmm. many jobs out there that fit that category. Mm -hmm. And so once we sort of get in a groove like a record and keep trying to play it again and again, we're not as healthy, I would say, and then adaptive as we need to be. What about the scarcity of trying to find a job or like the the sort of like over and over rejection? Scary. It is. It's super scary. And this is why I think counseling is a good place to do that type of career work. The evidence is clear. Work situations and things that happen in work really impact mental health and wellness. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Having work and losing it, devastating mental health impacts. Yep. Yeah. Having an expectation about work for younger people, having an expectation about work and then struggling, devastating mental health impacts. Yep. The reality is, is that, and I mean, I've worked as a counselor and a coach. I don't even know how many clients, hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of clients. If you can work with a professional or find a system to apply to the task of getting the work you want and just keep working that process and system, I have yet to find someone that if they didn't give up, they haven't had at least an acceptably positive outcome. And do you think part of that is maybe expanding what it is that you think you would like to do and not having such a narrow view of of what the right career is? I do. I always think of careers now, you know, we used to say like careers are job titles or goals. And now I think of them as vectors, right? There's pieces of you. There's your personality, your cognitive ability, your discipline, your values, the skills and experiences that you've required. None of those things point you to just this job, podcast Mm -hmm. host extraordinaire. (laughs) None of them just point only to that. They point to a whole vector of jobs that can satisfy you in different ways. And so if podcast host extraordinaire fits both of you, you know, you may not want to go out and get a job as an x-ray technician because it may Mm -hmm. be way too dissimilar in all of those different things that we're talking about. But like we could just quickly brainstorm the number of jobs that have many similarities to this job. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's do it. Yeah, let's do I mean, it. I, I think like we identify as writers, both of us. So okay. copywriting, like consulting with someone mm-hmm. about communication. I've been able to do um, sensitivity reading for mm-hmm. novels and like using, you know, my own marginalized identities. Like I think as a writer, I think Allison and I are both pretty storied in in using our skills for totally different jobs all the time. Would you say that your writing ability and identities and attributes help you be the podcaster that you are? Absolutely. Yes. And this is and this is not writing. I know. Right. Right. And so like now yeah. we've we've opened up an entire new sort of companion vector to just putting words on a piece of paper or on a screen that still mm-hmm. fulfill you in similar ways and have similar attributes and then would open up a whole new list that maybe Allison wants to create. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've definitely shifted in my career a lot in the last year or so in that now I'm I'm gone back to school. So just like, I know that's not technically a career, but it's a, a pa- you know, being a, the role of a student is 
in a way a job of like getting that work done, doing the work, writing the papers, whatever. And now I'm also teaching a film school class. So now I'm also a teacher. (laughs) So it's Mm -hmm. been really interesting to like do these different roles and see that the same skill sets apply to both. Mm-hmm. and apply yeah. to what I was already doing. You know, it's like pulling, like you said, it's pulling from those same strengths, just sort of applying them in different ways. It's just yeah. creativity, it sounds like. And also like being open to things that maybe were not what you initially thought. Like, so my sister wanted to write and review cannabis. She's like very mm-hmm. into uh, like medical marijuana and cannabis advocacy, but she was working at restaurants and she was like, I don't want to work at a restaurant. And she was just very against like trying to work at another restaurant. And then she found that in West Hollywood, they were opening the a, a weed cafe. Mm-hmm. And she was like, okay, I have clearly years and years of experience as a hostess and I'm good at it. So then she applied for the job there. But if she had kept in her head, I don't want to work in restaurants. I don't want to work in restaurants. She would have never found this thing that kind of worked together. Yeah. And it would be self-limiting to have that idea. And, And she sounds, you know, another similarity, I think, to the two of you, or at least what Allison was saying, is that there was a purpose-driven point to it, right? She wanted exactly. to work in an industry because of a purpose. If I'm correct, Allison, you're studying counseling psychology? Uh, clinical psychology. Or clinical a, psychology, my apology. On the MFT track for marriage and family therapy. Listening to your to your your podcast, many of the issues that you've addressed in this podcast have to do with mental health, sexual health, identity, all things that can be directly applied to the field of clinical psychology as well. And so again, like there are the similarities that you are carrying with you, both of you, regardless of where you go in your career but they do have a relationship to these other things. Mm -hmm. And so when we start to see these, you know, it's almost like, um, I want to say like the matrix or something, but like when we start (laughs) to see these connections, not only do they get us excited about ourselves, but they then, you know, you start to see the possibilities because you can see those connections and it makes everything a lot more hopeful and a lot more possible, possible to you as a person. It sounds like a lot of like, letting go of ego and letting go of preconceived notions of who you are and letting go of like, it's, it's hard. It's also hard as a person who I am a writer and all these things. And then when I lived in New York and I had no money, I would apply to retail or restaurants and then you would get rejected from that. And then you would be like, I'm not even good enough uh, for the, like I have a degree or whatever. So like, how do you, what advice do you have for people that, that are feeling like that? This sort of goes back to the social justice thing a little bit, but like, I really want to help people see this process for, for what it is. Um, like, do you, Gabby, do you remember the, when you were in elementary school or younger and used to play at work? Like, yeah. what did you play? What did you play when you were the youngest you can remember? Weirdly, like, I mean, a reporter, like I would write yeah. fake art, fake articles. Yeah. How about you, Allison? We would play bar where one of us would be like the bartender and then the other person would come in and tell them their problems, which is really just therapy. (laughs) I like it. I like it. If I had to choose between the two of you, I might hang out with six-year-old Allison because I I don't mind sitting in a bar. I would, I would, I'd put on like an apron and then like pour like a concoction into like my parents' one shot glass. (laughs) But I think like, and I think there's like, there's also internalized classism too in being like, I don't want to do this. I don't want to, you know what I mean? 
Yeah. So I wanted to talk to you a little bit about that, about like how we as a society assign value to different different values to different jobs and how maybe that's not the right way to look at it. Hugely classist. If I can go back to the childhood, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. We start with with work being a fantasy, right? Mm-hmm. It's playful. We we want to love it. We get to try on these different <laughs> ideas. It feels super free. Then right around the time when we transition from elementary to middle school, our brains develop enough to start to see things like class, social class. And we start to eliminate job possibilities for ourselves. We've already done that in the research currently is unclear, but we've done that to some extent around gender while we're in elementary school. Mm-hmm. We've historically made associations between boys do some kinds of jobs and girls do other kinds of jobs. I think yeah. in elementary school, we're doing a better job today of getting rid of that, that mm-hmm. toxicity. Mm-hmm. But, but in middle school developmentally is when we start to really rec- be able to recognize things like race and class mm-hmm. and associate them with the idea of work and careers, mm-hmm. because we're always watching adults around us. And so we start to get these messages of, well, the town doctor is like everyone treats him or her or them with respect. And, Mm -hmm. you know, the way my parents talk about the town doctor is so impressive. Uh, Like I I remember the most embarrassing moment of my childhood, of which there were many. For some reason, the town doctor, I grew up in a small town, stopped at our house the only time in my life to drop off his son for a play date. And I lived in the country, so play dates weren't a big thing. And he was standing there talking to my father. And back home, like when we had dogs, they were often posted out like with a dog house on a chain. My dog came over and peed on the leg of the town doctor. And I remember looking at my father's face. My father was a very working class guy. It was the most petrifying event of my early childhood. Mm-hmm. Oh, no. I couldn't even think about, like, what could the consequences be? Yeah, because you <laughs> saw him as so elevated. And he had been elevated all of my life as my right. brain was developing. Let's put him up here. Let's mm-hmm. put him up here. I, I do this little thought experiment that I think that maybe y- you've heard, Allison. Yeah, but like, I love it. Uh, like, imagine that your job is to be a public health official during this pandemic. Yeah. And the budget gets cut. And so your, your goal, your responsibility is, is this community that I'm in charge of, of 10,000 people, let's say, has to be as healthy as possible. But I have to either cut the trash collection for the town or the town doctor. Shit. So there's no right answer. But I got to admit, I've gone two or three years without a doctor's visit and I've just been mm-hmm. fine. I'm pretty sure if they didn't pick up the trash in my town for three weeks, there'd be like a cholera epidemic or something like that. Totally. Definitely. And this is all around the world. If you ask people to rank careers all around the world, doctor is almost always near the top, despite culture, Uh and trash collection is almost always near the bottom. Mm -hmm. And we have been fed this myth that the job title we have, it's prestige, has something to do with its value. Yes. That, that it's somehow merit-based. And that is like the biggest load of bullcrap that like I can possibly imagine. I know. Right? We are seeing this youngest generation, a lot of often called Gen Z, right? Like they're starting to opt out of college more often. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or to opt into trade school or mm-hmm. associate's degrees more often. 
you know, we have a couple, now that I live in the country, we have a couple of, of young couples that live nearby that seem to be living simply and raising chickens and chopping wood. And so I almost feel like this is such an exciting time for me to still be alive because mm-hmm. I feel like younger generations, yours has gone through the hardship that you're describing, Gabby, where the pull, it's almost like the Death Star, mm-hmm. right? The pull to keep these old ideas about career work and identity is still there. And, and now that that grip is being released a little bit. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm super excited for that in the future. Mm-hmm. I, I can't wait to watch. Now it's scary because it's uncertain, but it's right. going to be super exciting. And I think really good things for people can come out of that. Do you find that a lot of people feel shame if they don't know what they want to do with their lives? Like if they don't have a clear career path? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's that chain, right? So like in middle school, it's like certain careers are prestigious. And then what happens when you get in high school? When your brain isn't fully developed yet, you're told you should figure out what you want to be for the rest of your life still. And the picking a major right away. It just strikes me as the oddest thing. Like, does anyone watch a, a, a movie or read a book about someone who followed the career pathway that's laid out through school? Like that's, that's never the hero of our interest. It's the person that dropped out of college and opened a business in their garage or, you know, took a gap year and decided to build, you know, latrines in another country to help people. Yeah. But also if you just want to be a person, like if you just want to like graduate and I think a lot of this kind of goes into socialist territory, but like UBI, like the idea that like once people are given universal basic income, once time, once people are given Medicare for all, there's more time to figure out what you actually want to do. There's more time. I mean, my mom went to the school from fame, like she was a performer and, you know, you could argue she became a lawyer. So performer to trial lawyer is, is not a huge leap, but you know, she didn't do what she wanted to do because she was like, I have to be a lawyer. I have to make money. And, and people are like, well, lawyers more important than artists, but like, we're all in a pandemic. What are we doing during this pandemic? We are consuming art. Right. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So if someone was to like come into your office and say, you know, I I have no idea what to do with my Mm -hmm. life. How do you figure it out with them? Like, how do you figure out like what you're talking about? Like what their values are, what they, you know, Mm -hmm. what skills they could apply to what, what does that process look like? Yeah, the, the first thing I want to do, and I do this in the first meeting face to face, is I want to start the process of what I call uncentering work to recenter mm-hmm. life. Because mm-hmm. I think that work serves a good life. And I think that too often, even in the career field, we get that backwards. We communicate to people that, like, you finding the good work will give you a good life. Mm-hmm. And I, I just don't see any evidence that that's true. And so, I ask two questions at intake and then I file them away and wait until we're actually talking about careers. And and the questions are, what are the day-to-day relationships in your life? And that Mm -hmm. doesn't mean you talk to the people every day, but like if something either really good or bad were to happen to you in the next 30 seconds, who are the people that you would need to tell that to because of that level of connectivity in the next Mm -hmm. 24 hours? Because we're pattern-oriented creatures. And so I want to identify the patterns that give 
a good life to people. And we know from neuroscience and human evolution that that relationships is one of them. The second one is, what are the day-to-day behaviors that you show when you're living your version of your best life? And so those aren't relationship behaviors in my mind, but they're like, like a lot of people meditate or pray or exercise or mindfully drink coffee every morning. That's one of mine. Grinding coffee beans in the morning is just a Zen state for me. And so I want to help people articulate some of the patterns that we want to build into their life so Mm -hmm. that it becomes their version of a good life. Now let's talk about your work and your career. Now let's find out about your values and we can do different exercises. There's no judgment. I, I grew up, you know, working lower class and my, my spouse did too. We had two different reactions to that. I am like, I don't want to think about money a day in my life. As long as I can get a cup of coffee, I'm good. She is, money is very important to me because I want stability and safety. Mm-hmm. One is not right, wrong, good, or bad. They are two different human reactions to a similar experience. So we want to non-judgmentally determine what are the things that matters to the unique human being that's you. And and it could be safety. It could be money. It could be routine. It could be leisure time. I I had a great experience in my career in St. Louis. Um, I had the privilege of working a bit in the Muslim community there. And I live near a madrasa. And I was like, why are taxi cabs always at this place of Muslim worship? And I found out through some conversations, a lot of the cab drivers chose to be taxi cab drivers so that they could go to afternoon prayer and other types of work wouldn't allow them to do that. That makes so much sense. And it's what you value. And it's a higher value than other things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, other than being an awful person, right? Like there's no decent value towards work that we should ever judge, but we should be more curious to unlock them for an individual person than to try to get a person to follow this sort of factory model of education to work, in my opinion, that I think is too often followed. Do you think that there is too much of an emphasis on higher education in this country and that that sets people into debt? Do you think that it, it correlates with what they can then actually do? Or do you think that maybe some jobs shouldn't care so much if people have a higher education? I think that there are pretty strong correlations there. I think that the, the issue is, is that there's too much thoughtless pursuit of higher education. There was national movement from the government, similar to getting everyone to buy houses back in the 80s, 90s. And then we had the, <laughs> the housing bust. It all fell out from underneath them. There's been an intentional effort to push college readiness, which is interpreted by the general public as going to college is better. Yeah. Mm, And -hmm. as we get in that sort of factory model of if you do this and this and this and this and then this, you're going to be successful. Two questions arise. One, whose definition of success? Because it might not be the students. Exactly. And two, we're now seeing that because the cost of higher education has gone up so quickly and people kept pursuing that model of success, now they're realizing, oh, the bubble sort of is bursting underneath me. You know, I worked with people that, you know, went to a good school to become a teacher, a noble profession. It fit their value system, but the salary doesn't fit the $120,000 of student debt that they have. Mm -hmm. Right. That's a real life problem because that equation means that your life has a much less chance of feeling like a good life to you 
just because of financial distress. Right. Mm -hmm. And that is just as real as people that grow up poor Mm -hmm. in marginalized communities that don't have access to work for other reasons, right? Because transportation doesn't go to their neighborhood, because all of the decent work is far away in more privileged neighborhoods and things like that. So all of these things are super connected too, I think. Is there any way to to sort of fix that system on a macro level or? So I tend to be like a pessimistic optimist in my mind. <laughs> I'm a pretty active advocate in my own way and, and can be very political. So I'm frustrated with the current system as mm-hmm. it treats anyone who's historically marginalized. Less frustrated in the last week, but still frustrated. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But, but I also have to acknowledge, you know, if, if we go back 120 years, children as a, young as eight and nine years old were working 12-hour shifts in coal mines and factories. Right. Uh, if we go back just five generations, our great whatever grandparents, the grandmothers were still considered most often property of their husbands. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. My grandmother on my father's side never had a checking account and never learned to drive a car. Yeah, you weren't allowed yeah. to have your own bank accounts and credit cards until like 1970, mid-70s. Yeah, and I think these generational touchstones are important because it allows us to see progress that has been made. Because I would guess the two of you are like, that could never, I mean, hopefully you're thinking that wouldn't happen today. Oh, no, we're fully preparing for a Handmaid's Tale. Okay. <laughs> 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 but like, I think my parents got pregnant with me right at the end of high school and my mom got a job as a bank teller in our little tiny town. Mm-hmm. Um, she lost her job for being visibly pregnant. Yep. That's just two generations yeah. ago. That's in 1970. Right. right. And so it's easy to get discouraged if you don't keep the pulse of history to notice mm-hmm. the progress. So things are not okay today. I'm not saying that at all. Mm-hmm. To your question, Allison, like, I mean, 120 years in the grand scheme of things isn't a lot of time. And 50 years since I was born isn't a lot of time. And we have made progress. And so how do we hold both hope and righteous agitation at the same time, I think, is the is the thing that we should pay attention to. That is the question. Yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong. It's hard. The thing I could think of is like unionizing at your job being open to joining the union or, you know, advocating for a union, which again, could get you in trouble. I've done that. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) It can get you in trouble. (laughs) But also part of that, you know, if we can raise the minimum wage to a place that is livable, then you don't necessarily need to start a union, you know? So there's ways for the federal government, I think, to step in and Unions kind of started because there weren't child labor laws, you know, so mm-hmm. then sure. there more laws started to happen. I'm, I'm pro-union, but I'm just saying that, like, I think that you can also make changes on a federal level that will help. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I, I, I think you can. I, I think about it from like a power analysis sort of point of view, though. I mean, even if unions acquiesce to $15 an hour, they still have much more disproportionate power over workers' lives today than they have in the past Mm -hmm. when workers had better lives. And so I both agree with you, but it makes me worried. So I guess this is a good example of hopefulness and righteous agitation. Right, (laughs) right. Because I don't don't trust that much power being hold by, you know, my spouse was like, they're going to totally get you to go totally Marxist, Brian. But like, I don't trust that much power 
in the means of production. Like I want workers yeah. to have more say. And yeah. I almost prefer that workers are the one that got the $15 an hour. Mm-hmm. There's righteous indignation and action on a personal level and yep. on a federal level, which hopefully we'll achieve before the full Handmaid's Tale hits us all. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And I think that points to like the individual people, right? So mm-hmm. like, you know, there are spheres of doing justice work and all of them can be calibrated based on your capacity. So like how you treat someone at your doorstep at work matters. Right. Like just mm-hmm. to be seen and heard. You know, I, I said to a colleague one time after a meeting, I'm like, I, I just want you to know, I witnessed that as as sexism, what yeah. was said. And the coworker cried and we didn't take any other action. But I, I, I would guess that like just to be witnessed that is happening is, is somewhat helpful. And then, you know, asking questions is better than not asking questions. Like right now, my current place of employment I'm asking, like, is there a process by which we can consider doing indigenous land and people acknowledgement as an organization? Mm-hmm. You know, can you say what that is? My people might not know. Sure. So I, I work a lot in Canada, too. And Canada does this every meeting everywhere. It's basically hopefully working with tribal nations. So if you're based in Los Angeles, Mm -hmm. and I don't remember the name of it, but there's a great app um, where you can look up who the indigenous people were that lived on that land before it was colonized and stolen. Mm -hmm. And so if you were to have a business meeting, it would be reading a short paragraph acknowledgement saying, you know, we just want to take a moment and give acknowledgement that we are currently on the land of insert the native indigenous people and that we benefit from the placement on this land, the resources on this land. And it's an act of acknowledgement that our society was largely built on the backs of stealing land and enslaving people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so yeah. that's a form of activism and justice activism as well. It may not be changing who gets to live on the land and benefit from it today. But like an acknowledgement is a step closer to justice than just saying nothing than inaction, I would say. Right. And I'm not like an expert on that. So mm-hmm. forgive me or, or get <laughs> feedback from, uh, there are plenty of websites that are, I would look for ones that are actually where tribal nations are a part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And not just some guy like me that has no, no indigenous heritage <laughs> sure. repeating what he's been taught. Before we move on, when would you recommend that someone reaches out to see a a career counselor? What are sort of the signs that maybe that would be a good move for you? So, So what I would say is for children first, I would really be a proponent of parents advocating that their school counselors have time in their schedule to develop a structured career development curriculum. Mm, We know from research the impact And we know that the earlier in school, kindergarten, the more positive pro-social impacts that career development programs have. So that's part of a school counselor's job description. But when you go to a state like California and there's, you know, 1,500 kids for one school counselor and they have other duties as assigned that might not be part of what a school counselor is charged to do or expected to do, career development in schools gets squeezed out a lot. Okay. So there's my political soapbox as an ex-school counselor. (laughs) For anyone, you know, like 16 and above, it's the same thing as going to counseling. We go to counseling because 
our mood tells us that we need some help. Or we go to counseling because the quality of our relationships tell us that we need some help. So if career concerns are telling you that you need some help, uh, a career counselor is an excellent way, an excellent place to go. Mm -hmm. Typical places, uh, relationship problems often have a work element because Mm -hmm. work structures our lives. Workplace uh, boundary issues, not being able to ever get off email or get away from work Mm -hmm. is a big one. Workplace stress. So sleep disruption, mood Mm -hmm. differences, physical manifestations, if we can tie those to work, that would be a reason to go to career counseling. And then, of course, if you need to identify a next step in work, Mm -hmm. need to gain that next step, earn it, find a job, get a promotion, or have another sort of goal-oriented thing that either a career counselor or a career coach would be a great person to help you sort of follow a system that has been Mm -hmm. tried and true, that if you just work it long enough, we have good outcomes. I say we have good outcomes because it may not be the dream job at the dream company, but it's going to fit in an acceptable amount of all of those parts of you that we talked about before. Right. And maybe you've reframed a bit where you will appreciate that job more than you might have before you started that process. I love that work as a career counselor where, where an employee comes to me and they want to make a change. And through counseling, they realize, oh, all I have to do is ask for something for myself or advocate for myself. Right. Do that. And then when you get pleasantly surprised, I had a great experience at, at my uh, one of my jobs um, at, at the university I teach for. I was talking to my supervisor and I said, well, this committee I'm on like is a fit, but like, I don't think it's a fit for me and my approach. And I'm like signed up for it for a year. Is there any way that like this could be a possible change? I love that my supervisor looked at me and said, Brian, our job here is not to make you suffer. Of course. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, wow. I've been working for, oh my goodness, 35 years. And I've never had a supervisor say anything to me like that. It was amazing. Yeah. Well, have you ever had anyone ask you if you want to play a game show? I have not, but I'm I, this, so this is the part it's that's happening. been making me nervous. <laughs> <laughs> so this game show is called Hypotheticals. You and Gabby are my contestants. I'm going to give you a series of hypothetical situations and you tell me what you would do in, in that situation or your opinion about it. And then I just decide who the winner is. Yeah, it's arbitrary. Uh, very arbitrary. <laughs> There's no buzzer because my reflexes are really slow. No buzzer. No buzzer. But feel free to make your own buzzer with your with your mouth noises (laughs) if you want. (laughs) Perfect. (laughs) Okay, so our first game is Are you a terrible parent? Hmm. Your daughter, 14, has horrible stage fright, but really wants to audition for the school musical. You know that they are actually incredibly talented. So you bribe the director of the musical into giving her the starring role, despite her blowing the audition. Are you a terrible parent? They also blow opening night the second night and then do okay on the final performance. (laughs) Oh, boy. Oh, my goodness. I've never been a parent. Other than to fur babies. Uh, Okay. Um, (laughs) Bribing the director is a super (laughs) uh, unethical, duplicitous way to do it. I was raised in a time where I'm okay with the idea of like pushing children to do something. But a lot of that depends on the relationship you have with your child. Right. Uh... I mean, like, I mean, 
if you're if you don't have a close loving bond with your child and you push them that can create a lot of harm if mm-hmm. you do and and they see that that's good for you then that can be a good thing in certain circumstances but i don't think i'd want to role model bribery you don't tell the kid that you bribed the director oh no see i for me that makes it out of bounds unless they want to be a politician someday like what no i'm joking <laughs> no that, that's bad because they'll they won't have any concept of what they're actually talented at well they oh. are talented they just have terrible stage fright so when they're alone and they can sing and dance their heart out, they give them a 10 out of 10. But they won't be able to have the growth of growing out of the stage fright in order to get what they want. So I'm going to say you are a terrible parent. Yeah. Like, I hate dishonesty. So like, what if like, even if it's a 1% chance, like, what is the harm if they find out? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's I would a be large devastated. harm. It's very bad. I would be devastated. <laughs> yeah. Right, I'm going right, to have to go right. bad parent. I'll accept it. Terrible parent. But they do go on to win a Tony. So, <laughs> oh my God! Wait, because you you bribed them? Well, because that final performance went okay, and that kind of they said, "Hey, I can actually do this," and then they keep going. <laughs> okay, so actually, speaking of lying, our next game is: Would you lie or tell the truth? Okay. <laughs> your best friend happens to run into your ex from college while on vacation. At first, they don't realize the connection and fall for each other. When your best friend returns home and figures out that the two of you used to date, they ask if it would bother you if they kept seeing your ex. It absolutely would bother you, but you also want them to be happy. Would you lie or tell the truth? My best friend is probably going to listen to this because I'll make him and his spouse will have a field day with me. But I would I would lie. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I would lie. Um, And you just said you had an issue with dishonesty. I know. I know. I'm a hypocrite <laughs> right now. Ah! I, I would lie because I, I want to, like, I have that thing in me where I want to be the person I want to be, even if I'm not. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And like, I wouldn't want to take away his happiness. I wouldn't want to do any of those things. Right. Um, I would probably, yeah, I'm a hypocrite liar. But sometimes by faking, acting as though you are the person you want to be, you slowly become that person. And that's beautiful. So I agree. I would also lie. I feel like, I mean, normally my answer to these is lie. Uh, But I feel like sometimes you got to lie for someone else's happiness. Yeah. Unfortunately, you then become romantically involved in an affair with your ex from college and you blow up everyone's life. (laughs) So I'm I'm a double liar. I'm a cheater and a liar. Yeah. But they were your soulmate. So no, no, no. No, this omnipotent soulmate shit. No. (laughs) Okay. Our final game. (laughs) Is this person an alien or just rude? Mm -hmm. While ordering ice cream to go, the server asks if you would like your vanilla ice cream with chocolate sprinkles. You decline. But when you open the container at home, the ice cream is covered in chocolate sprinkles. You find a note that says, trust me. I know more about ice cream than you. Is this person an alien or just rude? (laughs) Rude. The sprinkles are delicious. What type of person is this? What do you mean? Like, what do they look like? What's what's their gender? What's the whole? What is it? Why does that matter, Gabby? Because this seems like something a white man would do. Think about the person you admire most in the world. It's their identical twin. Why do you do this to us? Why are you like this? Okay, I think I still think they're rude. Because what if I had an allergy? What if I had an allergy? 
I'm going to go alien because ice cream is one of my favorite things in the world. And anyone that could mess with that just can't be from this planet. Fair. Well, it turns out that they are a rude alien because they could tell that you weren't allergic because of their alien powers. Um, Uh But they also just like love to influence the human race. (laughs) (laughs) You're telling me there's an alien species came to Earth. They said, I want to work at an ice cream parlor. And my one power is I can tell what people are allergic to. (laughs) That's one of many powers. (laughs) Open your mind, Gabby. It's a vector system. You know, they have a lot of different things they can do. There are companion powers all along the way. For sure. For sure. I quit. I quit this podcast. Check out this superhero in the next Marvel movie coming out in 2021. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining us. This was so amazing. Where can people follow more of what you do? I know you have like online classes and everything, right? Yeah, sure. Are they online? (laughs) Yeah, most of my stuff goes through my website globalcareerguy.com. I also have a, a fairly new podcast called Behind the Science of Career Development, where it's going to be pretty wide ranging. Like the first episode was was talking about transgender experiences in the workplace. And then the second one is on what career development looks like in Singapore. So cool. it is a wild, wide array of like understanding what research tells us about all the things that we are talking about today. Awesome. That's awesome. Thank Thank you you so much. much. This was great. Great. This is great to meet you both. I appreciate it. Stick around after the break. We'll be talking all about happiness. Welcome back to Just Between Us. It's time for Topics. X, 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 baby. 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 What is happiness? I've been struggling with it lately. Okay, so while we were talking up top, I wrote some stuff down. I am sorry if the way I have framed things has been triggering for you or other people listening to this show. I want to say that I'm working on it, that I am trying to have growth, and I don't mean to be annoying or come across as a whiner or come across as annoying to you or fans if they've considered me to be annoying because of it or thoughtless. I wrote down on a piece of paper, I want to focus on reframing and feeling lucky So I'm really trying to do that now and I am working on being better and I will continue to be better. And this is me like at the podium with my wife next to me as a politician saying I will (laughs) no longer cheat on her. So I would like to focus more on feeling lucky and gratitude and happy with the things that I have. Thank you. I cede my time. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And do you think that doing those things will, will make you happier? Yes. I think focusing on what I have versus what I don't have. Mm hmm. Because that's not what comes naturally to you, really, right? No. And I have been working really hard on it. And I was sad to hear up top that it was not coming through. But that's the point of working. It's not going to go away overnight. You're not going to become an optimist when you're a pessimist. You always talk about like self-talk, right? Mm -hmm. So I think like if you start saying the things, then you will feel the things. Yeah. I mean, I know for me, honestly, a lot of stuff is the absence of saying things out loud. The absence of like putting myself down vocally helps Mm -hmm. a lot. Mm -hmm. Like 
even if I still maybe think the thought, then not giving it the power of, of saying it out loud. Yes. Because it gives it a bit more life in some ways. We've talked about how in terms of relating to people, you want to seem unhappy. So you'll like want to talk to your friend and you don't want to be like, oh my God, things are going so well because whatever. So you have to frame it as you're unhappy with a, a good thing because you don't want to like alienate people. I don't agree with that. Have no, no, I no, ever no, no, said no, no, that? No. No, 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 no. I'm oh. saying I'm saying people feel that way and it's wrong. Oh, got it. I'm got saying it. I'm saying people feel that way and it's wrong. You shouldn't be friends with people who you only need to be miserable together. Mm-hmm. And I think like, you know, sometimes I'm talking to Drew, who is single and I don't want to say like, oh, I love Mal so much. They're amazing. But it comes across the way it did to you, which is the opposite, which is I'm complaining about having a partner, someone good in my life. When it would be completely normal for me to just be like, Mal makes me so happy and I love them and they cook and they're great and they're so sweet. You know, like Mm -hmm. it's worse to do what I was doing. I think the biggest point is, is that you want to surround yourself with people who are excited about your good news. (laughs) Yes, who are happy for you. Yeah, that's, Mm -hmm. you know, and I think a a real red flag in relationships is when people aren't able to be happy for you. And you have to temper, you know, I said before we started shooting, that Mal has a couple really good things happening. And when they told me one of them at first, I guess my face twitched and Mal was like, oh, you're so mad. And I was like, no, no. And then I was like, well, okay, yeah, I'm a little jealous, but I like pulled it together. And I was like, absolutely not. Maybe for one second, I pulled it back. I'm so happy for you. Let's get celebratory pizza. Like let's, and then as I did that, I believed it. Mm-hmm. Totally. Yeah. And also, I think it's always interesting when and I and I totally get the instinct if you're in the same field as your partner. Mm-hmm. But like, you know, your partner's success is your success. I have like to think of it that way. You're too. a team. So every mm-hmm. time something great happens for them, that's great for both of you. I think <laughs> I said, I said, oh, my God, you're the Nick Offerman to my Megan Mullally. And then Mal was like, you know, that that lets me know that you think I'm Nick Offerman, right? Like. <laughs> You know that that lets me know that you think you're Megan Mullally, right? <laughs> I was like, oops. <laughs> I think for me, I like am putting so much pressure on myself to be happy. And like, I need to remember that I don't have to be happy. <laughs> Say more about that. Say more about that. Because you want to like bounce back, right? You want like this thing that's happened to not like ruin your entire life. You don't want to feel like, oh, now that you're alone, you'll be unable to be happy. Like, I want to be able to appreciate life and still live my life. But also, I don't have to be happy all the time. Nobody is happy all the time. And that's fine. And also, like, considering what I'm going through, if I'm able to be happy 10 minutes of the day, that's fantastic. So I think I I was looking at it as like a, I needed to have the ratio be like heavily Mm -hmm. in the happiness Mm -hmm. winning. And now I'm just like, I got to just appreciate the times when I feel happy and know that the times when I'm not doesn't mean that I I won't be happy again, that it is a pendulum sort of. And and also that the expectation of, of being happy all the time is unattainable. And what I need to get to is is more a, a place of, of feeling content mm-hmm. and feeling safe and at peace versus happy. Do you feel a pressure to like, if people like right now, if people are like, how are you? Do you feel a pressure to seem happy? Or I have, a, I feel a lot of pressure to seem happy all the time. So I feel a lot of pressure for like, like when people check in on me or when people when I enter a space to be like all smiles all like hey what's up oh my god I'm in the like you know even like in the house to not like 
kill the mood or whatever, but it's fake. Like, what do you feel about that right now? I mean, I think that there are certain situations like when I'm teaching my class, like I Mm -hmm. have to appear happy. And like, I think that like with work stuff and like meetings and whatever, I'm not going to like go in leading with with my sadness. But in terms of like people asking me how I'm doing, I don't feel compelled at all to pretend to be happy. If anything, I worry about appearing too fine and misleading how much I'm still being affected by what's right. happened. Like right. I'm almost, you know, because like I will be in better mood sometimes. And so, but then I almost feel like I don't want them to think that that means I'm better because I'm like yeah. not better. I'm just like happening to have like a, a good, a good moment. Right. I, I need to not care so much about how other people perceive me and more just focus on like being okay in the moment. And like, mm-hmm. I'm becoming... I'm starting to worry so much about like, okay, how am I going to feel when I go back to LA? Like, how am I going to feel in that apartment? I'm going to, I'm like so worried that I'm like going to have a horrible time. And I'm really worried about the first time I have to go to a social event alone yeah, um, where I'm just surrounded by all my friends who are all in couples, like, you know, things like this. And I have to just like be like, stop (laughs) thinking that far in the future. And instead just like focus on today and trust that if I can get to a place of, relative peace and contentment, then when those things do inevitably happen, they won't knock me down as far. What is peace versus happiness to you? To me, it's it's the absence of bad. So it doesn't necessarily mean the presence of great, mm-hmm. but it means that I'm not anxious. I'm not depressed. I'm not obsessing about something that is hurtful to me. Mm-hmm. I'm able to be present but like that's a little different than like I just sold a show or mm-hmm. like I'm eating ice cream or, mm-hmm. you know, like I'm playing with the dog, you know, like that. Like if I'm just sitting there that like I'm OK, I'm not going into a, a negative space. Right. It's hard with depression because it feels like there's so many gray areas between happy and sad. Yeah. And like it, it is like especially with grief, which is what you're going through. Mm-hmm. People find it strange to have moments of of happiness or clarity or whatever when they're in grief, and that doesn't negate your grief at all, right? And, be, and then and then it's like when then you go back to being sad an hour later, you're like, "What the fuck happened?" But you have to, rem- <laughs> <laughs> you have to remember yeah. that that's like part of the process. Yeah, and that also, you know, for me, so much of happiness was the safety and comfort of being in a relationship, right? You know, like I just happen to prefer being in a relationship. That doesn't mean that relationships objectively are better or worse. It just for mm-hmm. me, I found that I I enjoy being in a partnership. And so having to understand that, like, I will be able to experience happiness despite not having that. Yeah. Um, but also, like, the science proves, like, happiness doesn't last. Like, it's impossible to be happy all I the know. time. I know. It's almost like the drug of like, I have to be if I'm not like super happy, at least like once a day or every week, you know, that I'm failing. Like then you become obsessed with like getting to this level of like happiness where I think if your goal instead is like contentment and peace, then that's much more attainable and, and long term. I think you should think about that when you're doing wellness stuff. I think wellness stuff sometimes sells you happiness. Mm -hmm. And I think like focusing on stuff like yoga and meditation and things like that sell you contentment or that provide contentment as the answer versus like perfect happiness achieved forever. 
Totally. I think that's like a red flag to look for. Absolutely. Melissa, want to come on in and, and share your thoughts? How happy are you right now? Skill? <laughs> <laughs> I like, I don't know if I know what happiness is for me because like I'm perfectly fine with being content and I'm mm-hmm. like, I always know that things can be better, but they're not bad. So I'm like, I'm good. <laughs> if that makes sense. Have you experienced happiness? Like I like I'm like for right now, like I'm happy, but like things can be better. Yeah. (laughs) You know? Yeah. Like I haven't seen my family in over a year, but we're all healthy. So like I'm fine. (laughs) Right. And that's something to be thankful for. Like I know the exact time I last touched a human being, which Mm -hmm. like is not something that brings me joy, but I'm I'm healthy. Like Mm -hmm. But I feel like you're someone who has figured out how to get to that baseline of like contentment contentment versus like wildly fluctuating between happy and sad. Yeah. Have you always been like that or is that something you had to work on? I've always been like that. And I'm not a person that just gets like overly excited about things as it is. So (laughs) I'm good. (laughs) (laughs) I have to train myself to be excited though. I think it's so, I think you could stand maybe to try to be excited about stuff just because it's happening and not where I worry about like, well, when is it going to go away? Mm. I get so excited about things. That's amazing. I really do. That's amazing. Yeah, it's good. And so, you know, it's part of it is like not really having had that for a bit, you know, Mm -hmm. and like and missing that feeling, but knowing that like, hopefully it will come again. What are you scared of happening if you get too excited? Oh, no, it's not about fear or anything. I just, that's just not me. Like, I'm just not Mm -hmm. somebody that just gets excited about things. Like, things happen. I'm like, that's great. But I'm not going to, like, jump up and down and squeal about it. (laughs) But do you celebrate? Like, if something great happens, will you be like, I get a treat today? Yeah, I'll be like, I'm going to get cake or lobster, whatever I'm feeling at the moment. But, like, I'm not just like running down the street and letting everybody know <laughs> but i think it can be i think it can be almost a, also an internal feeling yeah just, yeah yeah like oh this is exciting <laughs> like it's exciting but i'm also like like i worked hard for this so like this is expected <laughs> if oh! that makes sense oh okay all right but you know you can take pride in in yeah that i fact. take pride in it but okay, then good. like there's I wouldn't say like, yeah. <laughs> OK, well, my assignment for you mm-hmm. in this next week is to the next time something happens that you think Allison would be excited if this happened to her. I want you to to really try to feel the excitement and maybe okay. go, woo, go, woo. <laughs> She's going to hate it. She hates it. I already she hate hates it. it. Well, let me know how I it goes. I already hate it. I'm like oh dreading God. it now. I think you'll love it. Okay, you don't have to do it, but it'd be interesting. Maybe okay. training yourself to get a little more jazzed about stuff. Ooh. Maybe that's wrong. Maybe it's terrible advice. I don't know. <laughs> but like, I love Melissa's happens, little... I'm just like, yeah, like, great. But like, but... I'm not doing cartwheels i love just now you're very timid Woo! Yeah. <laughs> oh my god what do we rate this episode oh god i will rate it 17 out of 15 
school counselor curriculums for elementary school students. Cute. I'll rate it um, 21 out of 20. Um, um, Pharrell's song, Happy. Okay. You want to know something? Huh. I really hate that song. Oh, I no, hate it's bad. bad. It's okay. an awful song. Okay. <laughs> no, 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 no. No one likes that song. <laughs> I've gotten in, no, I've gotten into heated discussions about like not liking that song. Of really? Oh, I yes. hate it. I've always hated it. Me too. Um, sorry, sorry, Pharrell. <laughs> He's N- probably fine. NERD was good. I was a fan of NERD, so bring that back. Okay, anyway. Um, I'll give it 30 out of 20. <gasps> Woo! <laughs> woo. <laughs> the most tepid woo. I woo. can barely even identify that as a woo, but Great. I'll take it. <laughs> Great. Oh my God. Thank you so much to Brian for being our guest. Just Between Us is a Forever Dog production hosted by me, Allison Raskin. And me, Gabby Dunn. Produced by Melissa Wumont. <laughs> Executive produced by Brett Poem, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. Brendan Burns composed our killer theme music. To listen to this podcast ad-free, sign up for Forever Dog Plus at foreverdogpodcast.com slash plus. Check out video clips of our podcast on YouTube at youtube.com slash foreverdogteam or youtube.com slash justbetweenusshow. And make sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Forever Dog Team to keep up with all the latest Forever Dog news. Also, on the at JBU podcast Instagram account, there's a link tree where you can find everything you've ever needed to know about us. Merch, Discord, all of it. Transcripts for the show, all of it. One, two, three. Whoa. <laughs> Melissa? Forever!